Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 266, and I had this conversation last year, actually, last winter, with Jeannie Alexander. It's taken a while to get this one posted. I do believe it's an important episode, uh, and I'm glad for y'all to listen to it. I'm going to read you a little bit about Jeannie. Uh, She's the executive director of No Exceptions Prison Collective. Its mission focuses on sentencing reform, internal prison conditions, and the abolition of all private prisons. She is also a co-founder and resident of Harriet Tubman House, an interfaith community dedicated to restorative practices in earth stewardship and human rights. So it's an intentional community of people. Intentional meaning they grow their own food and they live together harmoniously, things like that. She served as the head chaplain at Riverbend Maximum Security Institution in Tennessee. And she would say that she grew up deeply, uh, I believe she used the word obsessed with God. Uh, She is no longer a chaplain at the prison system, but grace and God and justice and faith, I do believe, are still a big part of who she is. The conversation was fascinating, I think. We talked about all sorts of things, uh, including what is a just crime, what is an unjust crime, what's just incarceration. We talk about uh, racism within and without the prison industrial complex. We talk about God, uh, transformative justice, the death penalty. I mean, we went all over the place, even love. We even talked about love, which I would argue that really the whole time we were talking about love, but that might just be me. So uh, I'm excited for you to hear this episode. We referred to a couple other episodes from Hey Human, including Adam Sheldy's interview, which was in the first year of this entire podcast and it was episode 12 and Adam's actually the one that connected me to Jeannie and then I reference Harlan Peace as well and his episode is episode 55 if you want to go back and listen to those. The usual stuff, Hey Human Podcast, can be found on Instagram and Facebook. My own personal social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is under Susan Ruthism. You can email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. On the heyhumanpodcast.com website, you'll find a links page with information from every episode about my guests and articles and books and all sorts of things. So definitely check that out. You'll find the storefront where you can get Hey Human merchandise like t-shirts and hats and things that helps support Hey Human. And I encourage you to do so, of course. Um, You can rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And that's also extremely helpful. If you go to SusanRuth.com, you will find a mailing list. I send out mailers a couple times, three times a year. You can uh, join that. Uh, You can also learn more about me personally, my music and art and acting or writing or whatnot. It's all there on the SusanRuth.com website. If you are into music, check out my music on uh, under Susan Ruth on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your music. Amazon Music, I think, also has it. And that's about all I've got there. So thank you for listening, everybody. Be well, be kind, take care of each other. And here we go. Jamie Alexander, welcome to Hey Human. 
Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you. And you are hailing from Nashville, Tennessee. Is that where you're from originally? or? Yeah, I'm originally from Georgia. Um, Atlanta, Georgia, actually, you know, and, um, but I've been in Nashville now almost 14 years and for Nashville, that makes you a native these days. So this is definitely my home. Um, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm here from Tennessee. Okay. And we met through a mutual uh, person, Adam Shelby, who was a guest on my show in the very first year that I started Hey Human. Oh, wow. Yeah. Adam um, was great. Um, Adam is someone who, um, I think he was in an ethics class that I taught while we were both still on the inside. Um, and so, yeah, I'm so glad that you connected with Adam. Yeah, he's a great guy. It's, uh, and he, the interview was fantastic. I learned a lot and uh, he's very well spoken and uh, the insight he gave into what it was like to be him. I mean, yeah. <laughs> no one else is going to give that kind of insight, I guess, about being oneself, but it was really wonderful. And Sidney, you said when you were on the inside, so you mean uh, as a person working or were you incarcerated? No, as working. Yeah, um, yeah that's an interesting story, how I got there. Um, but yeah, no, I was there working. Um, I have been arrested at this point probably 13 times, I think, um, you know, for... Um, yeah, for like for like working for social justice in this country. Um, in a state like Tennessee, there's so incredibly red. Um, but yes, um, I met Adam when I was like working on the inside, which was like, that's, that's a crazy story. Yeah. Well, let's go back. Uh, start me out in, in childhood. Were you a kid that was always looking out for the underdog? Did you have a sense of justice and social responsibility as a kid or did you grow into that yeah so I mean as a kid I grew up in kind of a uh, rural Georgia and um, I mean like right outside of Atlanta and in those days like we lived 30 minutes outside of Atlanta which was still pretty rural in that time and I grew up in a household um, my dad was a fireman and my mom was able to stay at home for a while. Like she chose to do that and then went to work for a newspaper. But my mom's background, she was a hippie from New Orleans. Okay. So I grew up with a pretty robust sense of social justice. Um, and I'm super grateful for that. I always say that my biggest advantage in life, um, apart from white privilege, has been not wealth or money, but having come from a family who loved me and supported me, absolutely. So, and, and that's been huge. A lot of my, my friends and comrades and loved ones didn't necessarily have that growing up. Um, and I did. And I never take that, you know, for granted. But, but yeah. So, yes, I grew up with that sense. As a person that did grow up in, in a strong family unit, then as you started working within the system where so many kids don't have that opportunity and, and, and maybe they grow into adults who, uh, whose choices and feelings about the world and themselves create an environment and a situation where maybe they will end up in prison. How did you find that empathy and that understanding? Well, 
I mean, I think what I would do is probably reframe that just a little bit. We live in a, a nation of white supremacy. And it's been dressed up 50 million different ways. But as a, as a nation of white supremacy and capitalism, and it's not just people ending up within a system because of their choices, but because they live in targeted communities. And so I, I was aware of that. Um, and that has always um, been a real guidestone for me. And so... And I did not have the language or the understanding, of course, as a child to understand that we have had a system of slavery um, that's never been disrupted from chattel slavery to carceral slavery today. Um, but that is one of the things that I grew to understand and learn. Um, I often tell people that like my most important learning environment ever was never at a university or at a uh, Ivy League law school, it was the time that I was in prison. And, um, and I don't just say that. Um, I mean that, absolutely. Um, and that's not to romanticize prison in any respect or anyone who was caged, but that's just, it's real. Like my most important learning environment ever was the five years that I spent at um, Riverbend Maximum Security Prison in Nashville, which is where Nashville's or Tennessee's death row was housed. When was the last time Tennessee put someone to death? Oh, God. Um, fairly recently. Um, and, and 2020, multiple people. And it only stopped, ironically, because of COVID. <laughs> it's like... That is ironic. Well, yeah. However, however, we stopped this killing machine that Tennessee has turned into, um, particularly under Bill Lee, who's our current governor. Uh, we stop it. That's, that's great. But it's like... Um, that it's because of COVID. Um, yeah. Yeah. I want to dig in a little bit to also the term white supremacy, because I think for some people listening, they wrap their heads around that and think, oh, those are that's people in hoods or people with swastikas or whatnot. And there, it's that's not what, I mean, yes, that is certainly some part of it, but the other much more, uh, larger scale and all encompassing, for example, like somebody who gets pulled over for something, depending on the color of their skin, how that's going to go down, whether they get away with a warning versus pulled out of the car. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah certainly. I mean, like, it's interesting because in organizing, trying to organize with people who are poor and white, who don't see the privilege of being white because they have been poor all their lives and have dealt with generations of that. Um, I mean, that's the intersection between capitalism and white supremacy. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, white supremacy shows up in a hood, but it also shows up in the way that you and I are treated differently. So like I said, I've been arrested 13 times and I never had a gun put in my face by a cop. Um, always had a good legal team, like movement lawyers who were backing us. Like I happen to always have a good legal team to like mm. go to court and fight this and to get these charges dismissed. And that is a matter of privilege. And I never forget the fact, and I am always super cognizant of the fact that anytime black 
comrades have been with us on the front lines and have been arrested for justice, that they were also to get, they were able to get charges dismissed because they were riding with us, people who are white. And so, yeah, I mean, I've seen like there's some exercises about like white privilege and what that looks like, like, okay, you may be poor and white, but here's the thing, like, here's what you don't deal with. Like, here's like uh, immediately being under scrutiny, like having to worry about whether or not you can walk to the convenience store at night to buy Skittles, you know? Um, and that's very real. So yeah, just like I'm always being super cognizant and aware of that. Yeah. Could you hold on one second? I need to yell at my neighbor really quick. That is making a big loud noise. Hold on. I'm Do so it. sorry. Go one second. No. <laughs> this is Zoom. I'm so sorry. They're building a house and I told them that I was going to be doing this at five and they're out there jackhammering. I'm like, remember it's five. It's like, oh, sorry. <laughs> All right. Where did we leave off uh, before uh, the jackhammer began? We were talking about, uh, oh, uh, being arrested and your comrades and things that because of you being white, maybe they get treated differently versus uh, how does your whiteness, do you think, uh, how do you feel carrying that into the prison when you go in there? Is it hard to earn people's trust? Is it automatic? And because you're a woman, that shifts the dynamic, maybe softens things or makes it that much more distance? Yeah, I mean, that was really, um, that's that's interesting question um, because yes, I do carry my whiteness in. And um, to you, I mean, would it be helpful if I kind of like, um, situated this kind of historically, like what happened and how I ended up there and that sort of thing. I would have, yes, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, so, uh, so my background initially is in law, right? So I went to work this, like, I'm like from this rural Georgia town and like the first person in my family to ever go to grad school, much less law school. And, um, went, got out of law school, hugely in debt, like we all do, who are like not economically privileged, but like, so I went to work for this firm and started taking on pro bono cases because I thought, you know, these are not, um, this isn't who I want to help. This is not like what my idea was. And a lot of people, I think, who are really well-intended go to law school and think they'll take a corporate job or a big firm job their first several years out to pay off their loans. And I, I couldn't do it. And so I ended up leaving the practice and I went back to grad school for a master's in religious studies. And it was at that point, I went back to Atlanta. So I was from New York for law school, Texas for practicing back to Atlanta and began working with a community that served people who were houseless and were in jail constantly simply because they were targeted. And the first time I went into prison, I went to George's death row and the first person I visited was Troy Davis. And some of your listeners may know who that is. Troy Davis was executed in Georgia and was pretty clearly innocent. Everyone from the former director of the FBI to the Pope came out and said, it's very clear in this case, this is not the person, do not execute this person. But George is a killing machine, very much like Florida and Texas, and of course now Tennessee, unfortunately. Um, and that led me on a, a very different journey. And 
So I moved to Nashville in 2007. And then not too, you know, shortly thereafter, began working as a volunteer chaplain on Tennessee's death row. And while I was there, the head institutional chaplain retired. And um, the guys on death row were like, you have to apply for this job. You're qualified, applied for it, take the job. And I'm like, no, (laughs) I'm opposed to mass incarceration. I'm a death penalty abolitionist. Like, no, I'm not going to work for the prison system. Are you crazy? And they're like, oh, you really love your principles. (laughs) But understand that a chaplain in a prison has an opportunity to wield some real power and that you can expand volunteer programming, for example, and create new opportunities for people who are caged. And the only way to communicate to our society, like contrary to the myth, this law and order myth that's been sold, that it's our prisons aren't full of monsters or full of people who can't be part of our community. The only way to, to like make people understand that is proximity. And I have a cat, by the way, I'm very sorry. This is just Zoom. Um, is to, for people to experience proximity and be in relationship with people who are in cages, who for all practical purposes have been disappeared from society. And so I'm like, okay, fine. I'll apply. No one is ever going to hire me because number one, I'm a lawyer. Who the hell in an American prison system hires a lawyer? Because the first thing we're going to do is bring eyes into that and see all the violations, all the federal violations, all the state violations, and to see how inhumane these, these systems are. And at that point in time, I also had like a record of being um, arrested multiple times for civil disobedience. I'm like, I'll make these guys happy. I'm like going to give it like, I'm going to try. Yeah, I'll apply, but they're never going to hire me. I'm not going to work for the man, whatever. Um, and they, they hired me. Like, it was crazy. And at that time, we had a warden who, like, was an anomaly, an extreme anomaly, first of all, in southern prisons, but prisons anywhere. Who was pretty progressive thinking. And I told him, I'm like, I want to grow like our programs and bring in as many volunteers as possible because I want there to be community. I don't want people to be caged and behind a wall and this is wrong. So we literally like just disappear people. And I had all these ideas and I said, and also I've been like, just so you know, I've been arrested before. And he was like, yeah, I know all that. And I think you're the right person for this job. So it was an amazing five years. It was, and I still get emotional about this. Like you can't not, the moment you stop being emotional about the work you're doing, then you know you're kind of dead inside. Um, It was the most important five years of my life. It was the most transformative five years of my life because I learned that the so-called monsters aren't caged. The monster is the system itself. And so worked really hard to bring in as many volunteers. We had a ton of volunteers. Things were going well. We had students from Vanderbilt Divinity. 
and Vanderbilt philosophy, the grad program and Vanderbilt law school coming in and like doing amazing work with insiders. And, and we never use the word inmate, that system language, which is very dehumanizing. Either say that someone is a prisoner or the preferred term that I learned from people on the inside, they were insiders. And so like working really hard to form those bonds between people who are inside and out and to understand that people are still part of the community, that people are still loved and needed, that there are not just families, but communities that have been torn apart by people who have been disappeared by the American prison system. Um, so I did that for as long as it was tenable. And um, we got new wardens in this prison. And uh, they were from, at the time, uh, CCA, Correctional Corporation of America, which then rebranded itself Core Civic. So they came in from the private prison system. They were fucking freaked out. Like we had almost 400 volunteers and a massive number of programs every month. And my department absolutely came under attack. And insiders who were working with the department and like, it was awful. Right, because the industrial prison complex yeah. wants to keep prisoners, people on the inside, inside. If they make money that way. Absolutely. I mean, because here's the thing. Like, if you do recognize, and, um, and we do, certainly, there's no exceptions. And I think we can absolutely prove this, that there is an unbroken line from chattel slavery to carceral slavery. You understand that it is a business. And, and where we are today, that the product that's being generated is no longer cotton or tobacco or molasses. It is a human being. It is somebody's, and this is one thing I always say, is that people on the inside may not be a husband or a wife or a sibling, but every single person in a cage in America is somebody's child. So we have literally locked up a nation of people's children and we have predicated this on, and we've sold it, that, that our culture has sold it out of fear um, and not the reality. Um, like it is absolutely true. One of the things that I like that we don't do and insiders we work with don't do the worst thing I think you can do to anyone is to romanticize someone that robs them of dignity and their humanity. But to be honest, so I am not going to like come onto your pa your podcast and say, oh, we just have to understand all these people. Most of these people are innocent and they never had good representation and everything else. Yeah, it's true. People don't have good representation. And that's not because the public defenders are just shit. It's because their caseloads are absolutely unmanageable. It's a system that is set up for injustice. And yes, it is true that people have committed horrible acts. Absolutely, like, and there is no doubt that there has to be accountability. But what there has to also be is an understanding of mitigation and an understanding that this system targets black and brown bodies. And I can like give you some stats and data in a little bit, like, like using Tennessee as a model because Tennessee really is the model for what's happening in this country. Um, and understanding that public safety is not about cops in cages. First of all, public safety is ensuring that people have their most basic needs met. So do we have community health care? 
Do we have mental health care? Um, do people have access to housing? Right. I mean, do people have uh, transportation? Like there are all these things. Like if we thought about community safety in a much broader sense, then we wouldn't have a country where we have the largest portion of incarcerated people on the planet. It's also a major economics problem when people can't afford <laughs> bail on minor offenses things like that. I mean, that's just set up to imprison people without money. Or, for example, crimes that don't even really have their penalty is money. That's a system set up to hurt people that are in an economic disadvantage. Absolutely. I mean, and that's what it looks like. That's what that's what capitalism looks like, wringing people, like wringing the juices of their life out of their body in order to support their corporations. And, um, it is immoral, it is unjust, and none of us should be okay with that. Um, I mean, because that is money bill, right? If you have the money and you can afford to make your bill, then you go home. If you're poor, you don't. Um, and that is just the absolute bottom line. And then, you know, this also dovetails into, <sighs> there's a difference between and this may be like later in a conversation, but I, I just want to put this out there, like kind of put a pin in it. There is a difference between who we need to be concerned about or afraid of versus who we're really angry with. Because the other thing that we have set up in our system that's super popular right now when we're talking about decarceration is the notion of nonviolent offenders. When the fact is, the individuals with the lowest rate of recidivism are people who have committed first-degree murder. It is a crime of circumstance. Most often, they're mitigation factors. And so that's one of the things that I learned in being a chaplain because um, I was around and working with people all day long, not who had been unjustly convicted, but had been convicted of exactly what they did. But most of the time, were either juveniles or up until the age of 25. So juveniles or youthful offenders who had been in an incredibly intense situation and someone was killed, they'd killed someone, who had then spent 20 years of their life in prison and absolutely was not the person who pulled that trigger. Absolutely is not a threat to the community, which is why in every other Western country, we see that we have sentencing caps of like usually about 21 years. And so a success in a place like, let's just take Norway, for example, that has a sentencing cap of 21 years, regardless of the offense. A success is if you can understand the harm that was committed, everyone that was harmed by it, because like violence has ripples throughout a community. There's a reason that it begins and it has ripples beyond the immediate people involved. Trying to work to um, restore a community, to transform a community and work with someone so that they aren't traumatized anymore, that they aren't a danger to anyone. And so a success for someone to get out in less than 21 years and you expect a maximum of 21. In the state of Tennessee, um, and just stop me from like going on too much because in the state of Tennessee, let me give you an example. 
if you are convicted of first degree murder, you can get the death penalty. You can get life without parole or our life with parole is 51 calendar years. We are the only state in the country with a 51 year life sentence. The only one. So literally what the state of Tennessee says, it doesn't matter your mitigation circumstances. It doesn't matter how old you were. It doesn't matter anything you've ever done. And all the time you've been locked up to like work and struggle to understand and transform and to want to be part of a community again, you will die in prison. So the reality in the state that I work in is that we have three forms of capital punishment. We have three death sentences in the state. Um, and that's appalling. I mean, especially when you think about, you know, Tennessee is a, a strong red state and all of our legislators think about themselves as pro-life. And what does that mean? That's such cheap language. When it doesn't ex extend to healthcare, when it doesn't extend to housing, when it doesn't extend to giving someone another chance. I read something back. the other day that I thought was so poignant. It said, you know, this country will take a child away from poor parents who can't afford to take care of their child and give that child to a foster family and pay the foster family $38,000 a year. Why not see a circumstance where a child needs help and offer that to their actual birth parents. 100%. Yeah. Well, that puts the nail right on the head, doesn't it? Well, it what does. about, because I'm sure some people listening uh, will say, well, what about rapists? You know, do how can they be rehabilitated and, and all that kind of, because uh, it's interesting. I do, uh, reading much of the research about murder tends to be a crime of circumstance and passion. And, you know, there's usually things around it. It's not just your everyday person walks by someone and says, I think I'll kill that person today. Right. It's, it doesn't usually work that way. Um, so as a woman, especially, and I might keep Put, putting back to that but I mean it, it puts you in a different category than a white guy you're a white girl you know how do you feel about that part of it yeah I mean I think that's a really um I'm so glad that you went there I mean that's a really important question too um because it when the crimes committed against people absolutely matter like we aren't about saying like well, the hell with victims. We're just trying to get people out of cages. Like, and when we think about people in terms of survivors, because the reality is the system we have right now um, and the DAs and everything, there's no healing for people who have been the victim of a crime. There's no real healing and like support um, to ensure that they aren't victims, but survivors. Right. And, um, and we work with a lot of people right now that's so, I mean, and this is just like so real who are on both sides of that, who may have a loved one in prison who killed someone. Um, and that loved one may have a family member who was also raped or murdered, or they may also have been the victim of a violent assault. And understanding um, that regardless, we are not the totality of our worst actions. And I also do understand the rate of recidivism is different. And what I also understand is that people on the sex offender registry, that there is no differentiation made whatsoever um, between people and what their pattern has been or what they've engaged in. And I understand that it makes life impossible for people. And this is not, 
I mean, so this is... Um, Explain that a little bit so for people listening, which, which you, I believe she, you're saying is that, uh, for example, if you're put on the sexual, uh, the sexual offender registry, that that means uh, it doesn't say, oh, for exposing yourself versus rape versus maybe you were 17 and had a consensual sexual relationship with a 15-year-old and the parents or somebody found out and got mad. And then, put you, you know, there are lots of... Uh, levels i don't know what the right word is for that but no. yeah i mean you're spot on exactly that is exactly what i'm talking about so once you're on that registry there is no distinction between certainly in tennessee i can't speak for other states but i do know in this state and and, and many states there's no distinction between someone who was 18 and had a 16 year old girlfriend right and somebody's parents got angry um or a distinction between somebody who like I mean this is I mean this sounds crazy but like someone who's drunk and they're in public and they're urinating all of a sudden they've exposed themselves right versus someone who has serially raped children right there's no distinction between that and what we would say is like even for that person who has serially raped children there will be times and instances where it may not be safe for someone to be in a situation where they're not socially segregated, but in a humane country and a country that still values human worth and dignity, that doesn't mean you put someone in a cage. Like there's no chance for like healing or transformation or understanding why someone is in that place. So one of the things that we know about people, for example, who do that is that that is a learned behavior that more often than not, Someone who engages in that was themselves victimized as a child. So, you know, that's one of the things It's like everyone knows this, like when we're talking about restorative justice is that hurt people hurt people. And one of the things that surprised me on the inside, and I, and I don't know why it did, like this would not have surprised me in a women's prison, but it did in a men's, that over 70% of the men who I worked with um, who had um, been responsible for engaging in a violent act, a violent crime to hurt someone, had themselves been a victim of violence as a child. And not just physical, but sexual violence. A s incredibly, like, seriously, over 50% of the men I worked with were victims of sexual assault when they were children. Mm. And they went on and like, and is any of this okay? No, <laughs> but what doesn't, what doesn't help us, what doesn't move us uh, like beyond this is a system of only punitive punishment that doesn't heal our society. And um, I mean, this is really interesting that I'm like, I'm opening up like this on your podcast because I really haven't before publicly, but in working and trying, and trying to work with victims' rights groups. Um, what I've had said to me before is, had you ever been the victim of a violent crime, you would not be able to take that position. Except that's not true. Like, never presume what people have been through. I absolutely have been the victim or survivor of a violent crime. 
And we also work with people who have had family members who are murdered, family members who are killed, who say that we don't want the end of this to be a cage and someone else to die. Why don't we just like, like, like it's never going to heal to just like trade a life for a life. Like what is success? What is healing? Is that someone understands the ramifications of what they've done? And then to please come back home and reach out to other people who could do this. Like to reach out. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, that's all. No, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just like, yeah. To, but what I find also quite interesting is, as you say, you yourself have been a victim or a survivor of a uh, horrible crime, and you also come from a theologian's background, and the biblical concept of crime, of course, is that eye for an eye. How did you come to terms with that in your work? Here you are studying as a biblical scholar, and it's pretty clear and I'm, Jesus is a whole New Testament, whole new new ball of wax, but especially Old Testament, the eye for an eye. Where did you, how did you put all those together into forming how you would face people on death row, especially? Right. Well, I mean, but that's how I do come at it. I come at it from that gospel perspective, right? Which is where you never reduce someone to their worst action. I mean, Grace isn't grace if it's only grace for a certain set of people. Then that's not grace. Um, and there is, um, if I can like relate, kind of like, if you want to tie this in theologically for a minute, often when I'm asked to speak at like conferences or churches or something, one of the things I talk about is a, um, a New Testament parable. And that is the Gerasene demoniac, right? And we don't ever think about that as like the healed person, but like the demoniac. Right. And here's the story, like Jesus and his disciples get word that there's this man who is out of his mind and dangerous and he's like possessed. Like, and we can translate that and however we want, like into modern times, but like, you know, to go to this person and uh, because this whole community is afraid of this person. And so they go. And he's been exiled literally to the tombs, which is interesting because many people who I've worked with on the inside who are disappeared, they think about themselves um, as living ghosts, right? You're not dead and you're also not alive. You're still here and you are not present. So he's exiled to the tombs and it's clear that he's been a danger to his community and he's inflicted, you know, harm upon himself. You know, he's cut himself. He's busted chains. And that absolutely reminds me of like the time that I was spent on a mental health maximum security unit, which was medieval. There was nothing healing about it. And I saw that every day, like someone who was only tortured constantly. And that's the state he was in. And so Jesus goes and heals this person and then you know this this man wants to come and join him and jesus is like no like go tell the people what happened here i don't know what happened so the, the story though if we would like set that in an american context would be jesus goes to the tombs and he meets this person who has harmed himself and harmed others and is too dangerous to be in community they're healed they're no longer a danger to community but then Jesus would say, 
Yeah, I mean, I know you're not in danger anymore, but people are really fucking pissed off because you do some fucked up shit. And now this is okay. And so I'm going to put these chains back on you and leave you here because people are angry. There is no gospel in that. Like there's no good news in that. There is no restoration. There is no grace. And if there's no good news, if there's no restoration and there's no grace, then what do we have? We don't have any hope. And hope isn't about something that happens for those of us who are privileged on the outside and like hope isn't like, oh, my car started working when I thought it was broken down or like, oh, I got a, a raise in my salary. Hope is when your back is against a wall and there's no way out and someone can still see the humanity and dignity in you, can still see that in some way, despite the system, you've been healed and transformed because we aren't photographs, right? If you could take the person at that moment when they committed their worst act on their worst day and freeze them, then maybe we could just like hate that person forever. But like we are creatures of evolution. And so we continue to change and we continue to grow and, and you can't stop that. And so at, at some point when someone is not a threat to their community and they have been, there is some grace, there has been some healing and they have and, and there's a, a need there to reconcile for the harm they've done, then, to, then we, we should want to do is say yes, to like set that example and to say there is a way out. Um, and that is the hope that that, that that gospel narrative gives us. There is no hope. And that's what blows my mind when you talk about like lawmakers who like claim to be pro-life and is limited to a fetus. And it has nothing to do with like getting people out of cages and healing communities and giving health care <laughs> or ensuring that people are not sleeping on the streets or freezing to death on the streets, right. which we will see in Nashville right now. You ask, like, is it really cold? Yeah. I mean, I'm comfortable, but I know that people will freeze to death on these streets. I know for a fact that sometime within the next three weeks, people will die and freeze to death on our streets. And there are lawmakers in the state who won't think twice about dipping into like a billion dollar rainy day fund to make sure that people don't have to do that. And they call themselves pro-life. Yeah. I, when I lived, I lived in Nashville for 13 years and, and one of the most profound moments I had in that city was uh, on Christmas Eve. One year I went to the, it was one of the nights at the inn type situations, you know, the church, um, on Hillsborough Road, that's right yep. next to the Ackland Post Office. It was there. And uh, <clears throat> walking in there and, and setting everything up and then feeding the homeless and meeting the people that were unhoused, sorry, the people that were unhoused. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I remember this one man who, he was, he was a bit jumpy, you know, and I walked up to him and, and I started talking with him and and I asked permission because he felt uh, there was something about him. It was Christmas Eve, firstly, but there was just something about him. I said, I said, do you do you get hugged or, or touched very often? And he said, not in a very long time. And I said, may I hug you? And he said, yes. So I hugged him. Sorry, this gets me emotional. And yeah. uh, and then uh, and we broke apart, you know. And then he sat down for his meal, and you know, I went off to the to the room that had all the beds, <clears throat> and it was gonna they were gonna show a movie, and I was like, oh. So I went and I found a big box of uh, goldfish crackers, and I individually wrapped them and put them on everybody's bunks because you know you, you gotta eat something crunchy and salty when you watch a movie. Anyway, um, talked to Airbnb, did my did my thing, blah blah blah. 
And then uh, that was it. You know, I went home that night. I didn't stay the night. And uh, the next day I found that that man that I had, I had hugged, he had passed away in the night. So it's, it's that thing. It's like if, if my hug to him was the last human touch, it may be the only human touch he'd had in who knows how long. That's the level of wrong that that is, is beyond comprehension, you know? Yeah. And thank you for sharing that. Like, I mean, that vulnerable, like, no, that's real. Like, there is so much transformative power in human touch. Yes. And like, and the fact that you ask permission is so huge, right? Because people who are marginalized, see, you got us both just like crying. People who are, <laughs> who are marginalized are so used to just being acted upon. And there is so much damage done by well-intended people who just like go in and like they continue to just like objectify people. Um, that was one of the things in prison. It was like, you know, like it was funny. There were security staff that had a lot of respect for what I did. And there was always the security staff that were just like, oh, you're just hug a thug. Because they were just like, they tried to tell me in the beginning, oh, you can't hug like the inmates. I'm like, fuck you. I'm a pastor. This is part of my job is touch. And people who are behind these walls and in cages often have not had safe touch in years. And loving touch without, you know, expectation or like without fear, without fear, most of all. And no, that is part of healing in my ministry. And I, and I stood my ground on that. And when like the um, amazing transformation, not that just happens with the person that is caged, but first and foremost, what happens to the person who is able to reach out to touch someone, to hold, to touch human flesh to flesh. To say, I see you. Like, I'm not acting upon you. I see you in this. Like, I had no patience for volunteers who wanted to, like, come from a church and do a prison ministry so they could bring Jesus inside the walls. And my response was uh, always, if you don't understand that God is already behind this wall, then God will be looking at you from the other side of that door then before you ever come in here and potentially start to do harm, we need to have some training sessions and we need to have some conversations and you need to meet some people who have been caged before because you're going to come in here with your privilege and your assumptions and you're going to inflict more harm because if you don't see God and liberation from the other side of that locked door, then you can't see God and liberation. Let's, let's talk about the kind of like theology you've been raised in. And what you're like kind of dispense here. Don't come here thinking you're going to give somebody God because that's not how this works. And that's not how it works in the gospel. Yeah. When you were uh, with people on death row, how did those conversations go? Especially for those who, were you present in any executions? Where I mean, I imagine there are there you know there's a lot of philosophers that say there are none so free as those who await their death you know that are because because you know yeah. there there is that that philosophy right. i read a book once called um it's called finding freedom it was written by death row inmates and it was a powerful 
book to read, um, deep and profound. Um, so I'm wondering if you had some of those kinds of conversations. I imagine you did. Yeah, I do and I still do. Um, there's probably no more horf horrifying torture than, than to be in a cage and understand there's a, a date for your death. And then to be taken to death watch, which people who I have loved and known have been taken to death watch multiple times. And then all of a sudden, no, that's not going to happen. You go back. It's back and forth. Like that's one of the things we never talk about or we don't talk about nearly enough when it comes to prison is the trauma that is inflicted. And so trying to exist and still have humanity and still have like, like people don't not have the humanity, but to fight against every stereotype and realize community in a space. And that's one of the things that I'm most humbled by is the experience on Tennessee's death row when I was in there, like working with people who were on death row to co-create community and to bring in people from the outside to create relationships and to create bonds and to still believe like we like, here's the thing, like this is just part of our humanity is like, we cling to hope. We keep believing like something's going to be better. Like that, that like, and no matter what we've done, that something's going to be better than where we've been or that someone will recognize that we aren't who we were and that we aren't still trapped in a moment. And so I'm thinking about one of the first, I, I knew Troy Davis when he was executed, but one of the first people I really knew well who was murdered by the state because there's no other name for it. It's state sanctioned murder was Cecil Johnson and he was on Tennessee's death row. And I was still a volunteer chaplain there at that time. And my Cecil was amazing. Up until the point he was taken back to death watch, like you're taken out of the unit, like unit two um, at River Bend is like the, the death row unit. And you stay there the whole time. So there are people who've been that one unit for over 30 years who have never touched grass, who have never touched a tree, who have never seen the stars at night. And he was taken out of that unit to death watch. So you're removed to another part of the prison, which is a cell, like, you know, I don't know, 50 feet away from the execution chamber. And going to death watch still believed that there was an opportunity for grace. My friend John, you know, Don Johnson, who was executed, who went still believing there was an opportunity for grace and not giving in to despair because they were more than their worst actions on their worst day in their life. And, uh, and I remember when I was out in this field adjacent to the prison when Cecil was murdered by the state and we were holding vigil that this ambulance came in and we knew that he was dead. And I remember just being struck thinking, 
how the fuck are you sending an ambulance for someone you've just murdered? Why can we not be honest at all? This entire system is dishonest and is built on lies. You don't send an ambulance for someone who you know you've just killed. You send a hearse. But there's this continued facade that the whole system is predicated on as a lie and a facade. Like, oh, we're sending an ambulance. No, you're not. You've literally just killed this person. You know for a fact they're dead. But for a parent's sake, an ambulance comes to take that body away. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, I mean, it breaks you like all the time. Like, and here's the thing: like your heart breaks over and over. And what I've learned is like, this sounds like super sappy, <laughs> and I realize it when I say it. But it's like when your heart breaks, there's this like scar tissue that's even tougher and can keep expanding. And I don't know how that works, but I know that it's real. And that's a, that's been my experience. And it's, again, it's not that I don't agree with people who have been hurt, but what we need is, is healing. Like an entirely punitive system that doesn't allow for healing. None of us grow or live or thrive past that. My friend Harlan teaches English. Do you know Harlan Peace? He's in the Tennessee system. Of, he teaches literature and English to the in, to people inside. Is he teaching it through T-H-E-I? That name is very familiar to me. I think yeah. so. Yeah. He's, he's a great man, uh, a lovely man. And we've he was on the podcast uh, a couple of years ago. And we talked about how to see the transformation of someone who is finally seen is humongous. And has a goal, has something to work toward. But I think really it comes down to being seen. It comes down to being seen. And also not just from everybody. That's, that's what's like. And here's why our fucking system doesn't do this. Because the hard work is in transformative justice. Because guess what? Everybody gets, to, everybody gets to be seen. The person who you've got in a cage, their family, who is now also mourning the practical death and loss of a loved one, the family and the individuals who have been harmed by this person, like for everybody to be seen, like our system has created like this reality where like only one individual is seen, everyone else is a monster, which isn't true. The data doesn't support. The rates of recidivism don't support. Like, but this is what we have to do in order to continue to to like to perpetuate a system of profit, as you brought up early on. Like, but like, yeah, everybody needs to be seen. Everybody needs to be heard, and we need to be able to like sit down and have the really hard work of transformative justice. It and is this hard is work. To, it's very it hard work. And it, it, the thing about it too, I believe, is that. And, and part of the problem is that it also creates a, a scenario where one has to not only look at a perpetrator and a victim and, and understand mm -hmm. that, but also look at oneself and touch, I believe, the shadow in ourselves. Because I think that's what creates part of this is the separateness. Like that monster over there did this terrible thing that I'm fucking capable of. And I don't want to touch that about myself. And so it's so much easier to make that a monstrosity over there. 
Absolutely. Along with recognizing the complicity and the active involvement of a system, like a system of white supremacy and capitalism. And those aren't just like words. They're not just like leftist or liberal, like catchphrases. No, it's fucking real. It's where we live. And like, if anything should have shown us this, it should have been the last four years. And then right now, since January the 6th, like there is like this demon, like to the extent that it was ever hidden, and it wasn't for people of like like for my my comrades who are black and brown and people who are in cages who are black and brown. It's never been hidden. But for white America, you cannot not see this anymore. Well, and, and I would even argue that it's not that it was hidden, it's that people chose not to see it. And oh, still, absolutely. And still, yeah. obviously, they are choosing not to see it. Because I think again, it's that thing of what does that mean about me if I admit that there is a difference between how people who are white versus people of color are treated, am I part of that system? And because I don't want, I'm woke or I'm this, I don't want to be considered to be a part of that system. Um, I'm just going to say it doesn't exist. Yes. Yeah. And I would say that if we are not part of tearing down that system, if we aren't on the front line of disrupting, tearing down and co-creating and rebirthing something new, then we are actively part of the system. Like there is no such thing as an innocent bystander. Like there's no such thing as someone who's just like in the middle, like we're just like take this moderate approach, like moderate approach, like fuck that. That's what's kept us in this position for so long. Like there's no such thing anymore as an, and there never has been as an innocent bystander. And like right now, no one can claim that. So like, if you aren't actively working to take that system down and to co-create and to take leadership from black and brown communities and understanding this and following, then you're continuing to perpetuate. Not only take a leadership role, but also, uh, you know, look to them to be leaders, but also look to yourself to finally, maybe don't, they, they've been working hard enough to try and show us. Maybe maybe start Googling some shit on your own. Start reading some books on your own and all that. Oh, no, yeah. no, totally. I mean that. But what I mean is like, what I mean when I say that is like, um, think about Georgia. Like the reason that Georgia flipped was the organizing and leadership of black women on the ground, period. And 100%. thinking that you're like a woke white person is like all of a sudden like, oh, then I can leave. No, sit your ass back for a minute, right? Really, like this is not, <laughs> we've gotten us in this position. Um, and like, yeah, you're responsible. That's like when like um, the anti-fascist work that we do, like with no exceptions. Um, this is not a fight that black and brown folks need to have with white supremacists. No, this is a fight with white people. Like that we have to step up for our goddamn cousins who are white supremacists. And it's time like, like to like say, no, there's no more. Like we have to be on the front lines with that. We don't depend on the people like who are like to lead us, our comrades who aren't white to lead us. Like, no, we've like got to go toe to toe with this. Yeah. And it's going to be messy and deadly and disgusting and horrid. And this is like, this is where we are. This is what white America has birthed at this point. Yeah. And I think you definitely put the hammer down in that, that a, a white person confronting a white person who has that superiority complex, that erroneous fascist ideology that, <clears throat> that uh, they are somehow superior. That is not a fight 
for people of color because that's that's oh. like that, that would be that would be falling on deaf ears yeah. and they've been they've been yelling as loud as they i mean my god they must all be hoarse by now you know what i mean it's like it's time for us to start screaming and, yeah. and many of us are screaming but it's still falling on deaf ears as we have seen it play out in the last yeah. two weeks and i'm i marvel at that too because if you're looking from left to right, not politically left to right, but if you're looking around you and if anybody on the side that you were on is wearing a Camp Auschwitz shirt or yeah. a, a swastika on their arm or carrying a Confederate flag, you've got to start asking yourself some pretty deep questions. Like if you're on that team, it's time for some serious inside work. Yeah, I mean that that big that's a Nazi indicator. If you look around you and there are Nazis on your side, you're on the wrong side. You're on the wrong and side. This, I don't care what kind of a tax break you got, that is the wrong side. Yeah, fuck your 401. Like and so like the other thing too, which has made this like possible, are people who think that like white people who think they're woke, like they read they, they've got it. To continue to make excuses for their relatives. Well, they support Trump and they say have, but they're not racist. Quit saying that people at this point in time who support Trump are not racist and are not fascist. Yes, hell, they are. Like, stop Wait, giving well, your it's family supporting, a pass. It's supporting a system of racism and fascism for sure. Yeah. It's, but again, it speaks back to that thing of like, if I look at this monster over here, but I don't identify with that monster, like I, I voted for, not, not me, and I'm speaking the royal yeah, right, yeah. Right. So if I say, oh, I voted for Trump, but those kinds of people are terrible. And it's that thing of like, you have to understand if you vote for somebody who is openly encouraging those kinds of people, it's guilt by proxy you are in the room with those people you are at the dinner table with those people you are breaking bread with those people it's just a, exactly it's the way around it could, could you ever say for example you know what i support hitler because he's done some really good things for germany and like i've seen what's gone down and i'm still supporting hitler but i'm not anti-semitic fuck no you couldn't do that like no so how the hell it is the same damn thing you yeah. cannot say no i support trump for this and that but like i'm not i'm not racist i'm not a fascist at some point in time the people you continue to support who are racist and fascist guess what you get to own it and i'm sorry that makes you uncomfortable and i'm sorry it makes your family member sad but that is exactly who you are and we are all in danger as long as we keep making excuses for people who are that. Talk you about um, no exceptions. So that was something that came. So you as a chaplain and then you did that work and then you you left the chaplain game. <laughs> and then what happened? Well, I mean, no exceptions was born out of prison. So that was a collaboration between insiders and myself and people out of like Vanderbilt Law School and Vanity Divinity and their philosophy program, um, like working to understand what would advocacy look like from the perspective of insiders. Not like someone who's come in and is like, oh, like I'm educated and I get it. It's like, this is what needs to be done for people. Well, fuck that. Like it's all co-liberation or it's not liberation at all. So what does it look like? And so we worked to understand what like the focus areas would be, like the mission statement would be on the inside. 
And so no exceptions is something that I was told to and willingly and gratefully carried with myself out of that prison environment to say, okay, I went into prison as a death penalty abolitionist and I came out of prison as a prison abolitionist. And here's what I've learned. And here are the things that people who are in cages want to focus on and like their families need to focus on. And this is what advocacy looks like from the inside out. And so um, that is like a constant community between those of us who are on the outside now and like um, collective members who are on the inside and sharing information and working together to get free. What would be uh, what's a summation of of uh, mission statement? What is the the end game? So I mean, like, the end game would be to restore families that have been torn apart by a prison industrial complex, and by doing that, to rebuild communities that were always targeted from the very beginning, um, to abolish slavery in every form that it takes. And that last vestige really of slavery, other than like like the, like the wage worker, but the last vestige are people who are in cages to eliminate that. There is no slavery. Like there, there has to be a universal abolition. There has to be a way back home for everyone. Um, there has to be an understanding that an answer to an injury and a harm is not a fucking cage. It's never a cage. That's not the answer. Does it incorporate so, the survivors as well? Does the program? Absolutely. Completely. Like I said, like we are working with people who are survivors. And like we've had people who are survivors testify on behalf of bills that we support in the legislative system. Like I'm like so like right now it's interesting because like I'm choosing my words really carefully here. There are organizations with individual, they're like victims' rights organizations. In my I'm experience, sorry. did you say victims? Yeah. yeah, victims' rights. In my experience, are often people who have n- never experienced any healing, who have never been able to move beyond where they were at that moment, because the system doesn't want them to do that. The system wants them to remain tortured and to be not healed, so they can trot them out at any moment to show back up. And then we are working with people who are survivors who have been hurt, who have lost family members. And so like, we want better for all of our communities. Like, yes, there is absolutely accountability, but accountability doesn't mean like we have two lives lost or three lives lost. And so like working with people who, who are working toward healing um, and not just a punitive end. I've been to so many parole hearings Um, on behalf of people who were absolutely not a threat to the community. And because the people who were victims of their actions, who had never become survivors, who had never been given a path to healing, showed up tortured over and over 35 years out. People who were six months old, but a member of a family when something happened, would show up and demand that someone literally be hung from a flagpole outside the prison rather than be released, even though they were not given 
a life without parole or a death penalty. Like we're doing this is, this entire system is nothing but a system of harm. It is a harmful system and it is a deadly system and it's not serving people who are victims or survivors by any way. How do you feel you move from uh, being a victim to a survivor in your experience? I think that, again, not having the support and not knowing where to go to, that it took a lot of time and being very honest about my with myself about my trauma and where I was and what was huge in that is working with people who were caged who had engaged like in the same kind of assault that I that had been like visited upon my own body like in the same way that I had been harmed and being able to see someone as a complete human, not as their worst action. And like really diving deep and questioning and trying to understand that and what that meant for me. And did I want to be frozen and like injured and hurt forever? Did I like, or did I want to try to understand it? I want to try to heal. Did I want to move beyond that? And that is not, that's not easy work. It's like really hard work. And it's really hard work for people, again, because we don't have a system that supports them. Um, that's not what's offered. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, it's messy. And it's doubly messy in a system that is not a system of, of transformative justice. Um, and it's just... I don't know how to explain to you like what it was, whatever happened in me to allow me to see beyond my own trauma, to see a, a fuller picture and to understand the deeper trauma within our entire society, to like be able to step in someone's shoes and not just like, say, oh, it's okay, but like try to gain some understanding. Understanding became much more important to me than vengeance, which doesn't get us anywhere. It keeps us exactly in the same place. And if I wanted to heal and I wanted to grow, I needed to get past that. Does, mm. does that answer that question? It does. Right? It does. And, and I think the word is grace. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> There's that word again. I, yeah. Uh, talk about Harriet Tubman House. What is that aspect of your work? So um, Harriet Tubman House is where I live. And we are an abolitionist community. And everyone here is either, well, everyone here is involved in the work of abolition. And they're either, um, and that includes people who have been formally caged, like living in a place of community. Um, and let me tell you, <laughs> it is not always easy. <laughs> I mean, it is not kumbaya, like, um, community living is not for the faint of heart, but like, it's like, 
it presents another model of what it can look like rather than like this idea of like the rugged individual, like just like proceeding forward and like success meaning like whatever the fuck success means in capitalism. It's like, no, like real success is living in community and like feeding each other and being present with each other and like doing the hard struggles and doing this work together and moving forward together. Um, and so that is all tied in with like prison abolition, but it also has to do as well. Um, and this is a completely different conversation um, with land justice and what it means for people to be able to feed themselves to not like be victims of food deserts or food apartheid more accurately. Um, what it means to like live and work together on land and create space, which is regenerative. Um, not just for our immediate present body before the earth itself. Yeah. What, where, where is that in Tennessee? Is it in Nashville proper? It's in Old Hickory, Tennessee. Okay. So mm -hmm. like we're, you know, I can hop on an interstate or a parkway and be downtown in about 25 minutes. So we're not that far out. And you now have I, land that you cultivate for food and. And it's not, it doesn't take a huge amount. Like it takes an acre for our community, but like we produce enough food that it's like, it feeds us. And like, we can give away a ton of food. Like there are like ways to think about the way that we live. Like, as opposed to just like having green lawns, like, I think that grass is an abomination. Like, why aren't you growing some fucking cucumbers on that? You know? <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's actually, I learned about um, this a couple of years ago. A friend of mine had reached out to a landscape architect who the whole gist of it is they map your your landscaping. There, There is no grass. It's it's everything in your garden, everything in your, on your property is edible and is cultivated and renewable and and I thought, man, that is the coolest thing I've ever heard. That's beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. And that's like what we're working toward. So, yeah. yeah. How many people live intentionally on your... We land? have right now four people in the household in an extended community of about 20 people. How, what is the parameter when somebody comes to you and says, this sounds like a good idea? What is their... Uh, what do they need to bring with them as far as... Uh, self selfness and and selflessness i mean like it's just like trying to have clarification discussions and meetings and figure out what makes sense for us and for the land and for that person like that that's not usually actually the way that it happens um it's just a bit more organic than that like people who are involved with this community have been involved at this point for a long time and new people come in are like are welcome how might people find you and, and contribute to the work or be a part of it or ask you more questions, which I'm sure this will create? Yeah. So they could go to like the most, like the easiest way would be No Exceptions Prison Collective on Facebook. They can message us, like send us a message. Um, Harriet Tubman House, like out of Old Hickory, Tennessee, message again on Facebook. Um, I mean, almost every post I ever do on Facebook is public. That's easy. It's easy to get a hold of me. Um, and so, I mean, 
here's the thing this is embarrassing people could follow us on twitter and what have you but like i don't control that aspect of social media (laughs) (laughs) i mean no exceptions prison club is somewhere like but like yeah i would say look to harriet tubman house on on facebook or no exceptions prison collective like and connect with us that way um i don't handle the twitter stuff and i need to get better about explaining that but like I just Social don't. media is its own monster. It's it is hard to yeah. not navigate for sure. Or, or they can reach out to me directly. I mean, Jeannie, J-E-A-N-N-I-E dot no exceptions. Remember the S on the end of exceptions at gmail.com. Like okay. if somebody really want to get through. And I'll put links as I always do on heyhumanpodcast.com. Absolutely. This has been like such a delight talking to you. Like I'm so grateful you reached out. Yeah, when I learned about you, I was very excited to be able to have this conversation. So I, I very much appreciate it. And I I know that uh, a lot of people, the reason why I find it important to have these conversations is because I think that, as you said earlier in, in this talk, that there is this notion of what it means to be somebody on the inside and what it means to be a perpetrator and what it means to be a victim and what it means to be a survivor and all these boxes exist. And, uh, and people are, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to break down an ideology that ha- that you have maybe your whole life. You know, if you yeah. grow up in a family that is like pro death penalty without really digging into what that ramification is, what it means financially, what it means for, the people that are, as you say, behind bars their whole entire existence and never touching grass. Some people would say, oh, that's fine. They've taken away another life. So, but where does the, you know what I mean? It's like, I remember I brought this up on a previous podcast where I was talking about when uh, Ted Bundy, we can all agree that's a monster. When Ted Bundy was, was killed when he was, uh, you know, executed executed by, by the state that the, I watched the footage outside of the prison of that. And I was deeply disturbed by the reaction of the people who were like, burn him up and Ted Bundy toast and all this stuff. And I thought that is no different than how maybe he felt when he was taking one of his victims it's the same you right now are being that person you're feeding into that that devil if you will you know and I I was like man this is freaking me out because those people think they're right for wanting to put him to death and for whatever dysfunction he had and justifying his decisions it's it's bizarre to watch that interaction play off of each other Absolutely. I mean, I think the last thing I would say about that is that the price of the industrial prison complex comes at our humanity, period. If we give in to that, if we co-sign on to that, if we continue to perpetuate that, the only way that that is done is at the cost of our humanity. I could tell you hours of stories of seeing prison guards and watching them dissolve into tears as they did things that were horrid and just said, well, shouldn't have come to prison when they were doing things that were morally wrong. The price of this is our own humanity. And if we don't give a shit about people in cages, 
then maybe we give a damn about our own humanity because that is the ultimate cost. Well, and I've read uh, accounts from people who are the ones, the executioners, the ones that are administering the, the medicine, the, I don't know if you can't call it medicine, I guess, but the, the toxins or the, the people the toxins, that, yeah, the, or the yeah. electric chair people, the people, are, who are, the people who are like literally contracted to murder people. Yeah. The executioners. Like yeah. That the, the toll that that takes on them, that, that is their job. They're state sanctioned. And that goes so far as even, you know, military. I have a friend who's a Marine and he said they, they basically train us to be serial killers, you know, that at, at what side, where are you on the line? When is taking a life? Okay. Well, if it's sanctioned by the military, that's okay. But what if it's a civilian? Not okay. What if it's a military killing a civilian? Not okay. What if it's a civilian killing a civilian? Not, you know what I mean? It's like this whole, what if you've broken into my house and you're raping my wife? Do I get to kill you? You know, there's this, this crazy subtlety within, within the system of it all. And as you say, at what cost? I know you're going to edit this. Do I have time to like tell you two stories? Yeah, please do. Absolutely. I only edit it for glitches. Like everything basically stays exactly as we've talked. But if, if suddenly we go, blah, 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 because it's on Zoom, I'll okay. take that out. <laughs> okay. So two stories really quick. And I know we probably need to wrap up. But here's one. But just I think both of these things really underscore what, what the reality of the, the prison industrial complex. So I'm thinking about two things. There were so many, but two things that happened when I was a chaplain. One is that there was a guy on the inside, you know, who really, I mean, just like a freaking good guy. You know, he got caught up in the system. He had a sentence, whatever. And uh, he was like, literally wrong place, wrong time. And he was in and he had a wife, he had a child. And his child, who was two, as I recall, there had been this horrible accident. And the, this kid had fallen off a balcony and was on life support and was going to die. And that's part of your job as a chaplain is to go to people who you already know are not going to be allowed to go to a hospital or to a funeral and tell them someone they love more than anything is dying on the outside and they can't get to them. So I had to go tell him that. And he's someone who I, you know, I really knew well. And he was devastated. I mean, I, I told him in this private room um, usually when I would deliver news like that or have one-on-one -on -one meetings, I wouldn't have any guards in there with me. I was like, no, get out. Like, these are private meetings. But there were two who were in there. They were both women because they just insisted on being there. They didn't know how I was going to react, whatever. And he just crumpled as a human. Like, he just hit the ground screaming, like, knowing his child was out there and was going to die. And so asked if he could, ask me, could he at least get out to get to the, the NICU, right, to get to the intensive care unit, to be 
with his son before he died and like be present or be present for a funeral and I had to say no. And like it tore him apart. And I looked up as like I held him talking about touch. I held him and then when he decided he was ready to go back to his fucking cage, he left, he went back. And there were those two guards standing there. And both those women had tears in their eyes. They were just crying. And I stood there and we had this like moment of connection and we looked at each other. And I was like trying to figure out how to move forward and to like, how do you be a chaplain in that moment and comfort people who have to keep someone in a cage who was being torn apart and they themselves are being torn apart. And one of them looked at me and said, shook it off because she'd been trained to and said, well, should have come to prison. And they both walked out. Before you can ever dehumanize someone yourself, a system has to dehumanize you first. The only way you can do that yourself is to also be objectified and dehumanized. And then like the other story, like really quick, is that um, my clerk who worked with me, an amazing person um, who actually is my partner now, but at that time was not, but like went in at 18, had had a psychotic break, had been like a golden child, Eagle Scout, never done anything, snapped in a horrible situation, killed someone, had been in for 20 years almost, and was working as my clerk at the time. And uh, it was late, it's kind of a late night. And again, a guard came in, who had been deployed to Afghanistan, who began talking about all their kills, all the people they had killed. And were like gloating, literally, like all these lives they had taken and the fact that they had their house booby trapped. So if someone came to their house, they'd kill them too. And Jacob was like sitting there, like working, like trying to stay calm, trying to stay quiet. And never fucked up a day in his life until that one day that was horrible when he took someone's life. And now he was condemned to a 51 year life sentence. And this person is literally gloating about all the lives they'd taken. And I finally had to intervene and, and say, you need to just shut up now and get out of my office. And I had them removed from the building from that point forward. But it was like, like, can you not even see? You yeah. have this person who is basically a juvenile who killed someone in a horrible situation. And yet you hire someone to have control over them who has claims they can't, they have to kill multiple people. I'm like, they're an authority figure. We're so right. fucked up. It's because, yeah, and I have friends, again, who have been to war and had to take people's lives, the quote-unquote right. enemy, and it has really fucked them up emotionally because they they had to they had to get broken down to be a killing person, and then they get released from military, and they're, they've been turned into this person that there's no returning you back. You can't rewind things like this. We have, we had a lot, I mean, and this is not unique to Tennessee. It's like, this is true. Like, first of all, the rate of attrition for correctional officers is really high. No one wants to work in a prison 
because it's so fucked up and it's a horrible environment for people who are both caged there and work there. But I remember when I started like realizing so many people who were coming to work in our, in this prison who were former military and who had been deployed. And I had, and I asked like, and I remember asking this conversation with this guy one day, he was like a really decent guy, you know, like he former military was in the prison. He seemed like fine, pretty nice. And I asked, I said like, you're in an environment now. This is also very traumatic. What is it like? How do you relate? How do you go from a theater of war into an American prison system? What is this transition like for you? I, I want to understand. And he looked at me and said, "Only difference is we can't kill these guys." Same yeah. thing. Yeah, uh, Adam. I, Adam and I had that conversation uh, when I had him on the show because he served in the military and he was also he had served a prison sentence yep. and he said in the in the conversation we had he's like it's no real difference it's it's practically the same thing yep. and and i thought that it really gave me pause and then since that conversation i've talked to other uh people i know that are in the military who have experienced both those things and uh yeah yeah pretty wild did you so say like partner so do you fell in love with your clerk did you mean romantic partner? Now, how did, how, I'm, I know we're running out of time, but see now that speaks again to, we want to, the people think, oh, everyone in prison is this one way, but guess what? There, there's, people are complicated. We are mosaics. How, that must've been quite complicated. I yeah, people are like hella complicated. I mean, he was brilliant and amazing and like one like if you want another guest for a, f a future podcast like incredibly like amazing analysis of the prison like the american prison system he was like a golden child like college scholarship everything um had a history of the house uh, his family and like experiencing extreme depression like as like teenagers and early adulthood and like never got the help he needed because he was such a golden child like all this crazy shit right i mean and everything fell apart and so was it like a romantic interest while he was working for me like once i left and like we began to like form no exceptions and working with insiders and like people who like had been you know like within the prison system and who were out now began collaborating with him because he had like such a spot on analysis. Like he's been published in like Huffington Post and stuff, like really clear analysis and working together to understand what like dismantling the carceral state in Tennessee looks like. And then just like, yeah, realizing one day I was in love with this person and thinking like, oh, but he's on the inside, I'm on the outside. He has an impossible life sentence, but like I'm working against these life sentences. And I eventually just had to ask myself, wait a minute, if this person were free, like, would you be hesitating? Would you think this is not someone who was like an amazing partner for you? If like you knew them in the free world? And I thought, no, of course, like obviously we'd be together. I'm like, so how are you preaching what you preach and saying these things and there's still some boundary there because what somebody has a fucking stripe on their leg and that was never real for me and so I'm like well of course not of course i love this person like i've known them i've worked with them for years day in and day out like um 
so yeah i mean so i mean that's the reality like we never come at this with no exceptions as from theoretical like perspective like we are people who are currently inside and outside and family members and people who have loved ones like there is real skin in the game and if you don't have that real skin in the game you're not like you know like people in this collective have a life at stake yeah you are a fascinating woman <laughs> how are you by the way i think we have more conversations in the future so thank you like from Absolutely. one fascinating moment to another thank you so much for this invitation i really appreciate it and nashville is the poor for not having you here anymore uh well i appreciate that <laughs> excuse me and uh absolutely i i hope this is not the last time we talk with each other and i say yes an open invitation anyone that you think might want to be on the show please let me know um i am certainly open to that and uh, not only open to it but welcoming of it so yeah, yeah. thank you so alexander much. thank you so much this has been fantastic susan thank you this is really good and like keep just doing this work you're doing it's so important I'm, i i believe in the core of my heart that narratives of everything like like narratives are everything like stories change the way we perceive the other like it matters like this deeply matters so thank you i appreciate that thank you have a wonderful night you too everybody thank you for listening bye bye, -bye. rate and review hey human on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts thanks bye